Good afternoon and happy Monday. Thanks so much for being with us. It has been a busy morning and is continuing to be a busy afternoon. We are going to talk more about the promise made from the Liberal leader earlier today of building a bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel if elected. A lot coming up on that as well as your chance to join the conversation. We will open up the phone lines to get your take on that as well. Also taking a look at a new Insights West poll and it asks British Columbians how you are feeling financially. Most British Columbians surveyed here say they do think we are in for a lengthy recession, but there is some optimism as well. We'll talk about that after the one o'clock news. So you've likely also heard Donald Trump, the U.S. president, saying he will be leaving the hospital this evening, I think 3.30 our time. We are going to check in with our Global News Washington correspondent for the very latest on that coming up on the show as well. But First, as you've been hearing in the news, that was the promise made earlier today by Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. And what we're announcing today is that the people stuck in the traffic at the Massey Tunnel on a daily basis for up to an hour in each direction can look forward to the restart of the construction of the bridge replacement for the Massey Tunnel. This will be an 8 to 10 lane flexible bridge with a revised interchange on Steveston Highway. Let's bring in Lois Jackson, former mayor of Delta, a city councillor in Delta. Thank you so much, Lois Jackson, for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Jill, for the opportunity. I haven't talked to you for a long time. (laughs) It has been a long time, but we thought of you immediately because I still remember way back when the original bridge proposal was announced and residents were told the bridge was being built. I, I remember you saying, I can retire as mayor. I can leave this post now knowing that my number one goal, one of my main goals was met. So how do you feel today where we are with things? Well, I must say that things have not improved <laughs> since those days. Um, I, you know, I, I really think that, um, you know, Andrew Wilkinson bringing this issue back to the public is a good idea. You know, the reasons for the construction of the bridge, Jill, um, as proposed then and now, they are today very sound. They were sound then, they're sound today. The reasons for that construction of the bridge are all there, you know, and I'm not sure if you want us to go over all those again, but, you know, the growth in the region is, um, and, you know, it's going to continue to take place. We're not going to stop growing in this region, particularly south of the river. And, um, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, commercial, commuter traffic, BC ferry traffic, you know, it, it's going to increase from the United States, from the port, from from basically people living south of the river. The, it is going to take place, and traffic is going to continue, and we can't just build for today. We've got to build for, you know, 50 years down the road. What did you think about uh, the the plan or, or when the, the uh, NDP government came in and nixed uh-huh. the bridge plan but did say they were leaning more towards a replacement tunnel? Well, I was disappointed because, uh, you know, we went into uh, the uh, reasons that a tunnel was not a good idea when the original decision was made by the then uh, Premier Christy Clark. Um, I mean, a tunnel is more expensive. At that time, it was more than three times as expensive as a bridge. Um, The disruption to the Fraser River is would be huge 
there's a great swath of dredging that would have to take place. The destruction, in in my opinion, uh, to the ecology is not warranted. And um, it, it is a challenge, much more challenging to construct a tunnel than it would be a bridge. And, um, you know, extension of the, of the Canada line could be completed. And, uh, there, you know, the significant farmland footprint issue for the tunnel was huge. There was basically none of, with, the, with the bridge. As far as the farmland is concerned, huge imprint from the tunnel. So, you know, despite the politics at Metro Vancouver table by all the mayors, uh, and I can't speak too highly of that. Um, uh, most of them were brand new mayors at the time. There was an Angus Reid poll taken, Jill, some years ago. And I, I'm not sure that it's changed now. Uh, the public from North Vancouver and uh, West Vancouver, uh, Maple Ridge, all over the lower mainland, people wholeheartedly supported the bridge. And uh, my recollection, it was like in the 70s or 80s. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. But, you know, those were things that happened, and they were researched. The number of meetings that were held was was huge. So I, I really am very happy that uh, Wilkinson has brought this forward again for some public debate. The reasons for construction, they're still there. They're still there. How frustrating is it, though, as, as a former mayor and current councillor, that this is politicized, and depending on who's in power, uh, there's the back and forth, and it is used as a political promise and a bit of a political football? Yeah, it, it really is sad. You know, you do things for the right reason, not because Johnny down the street is going to uh, tell you he'll support your project if, his, if you support his. I, I don't like that kind of politic. And I, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed to see that it's happening. You have to look at what people need. This is a people's business, not, you know, somebody that happened to get elected as whatever, whatever, whatever level. Yet you've got to do things for the right reason for the people. They're the ones that count. They're the ones that are paying the freight, you know, and, and, and I really think that, it, that it's time we looked at the needs of the people, not of those that are sitting in a, a high chair, um, you know, uh, trading um, uh, promises to each other, you know. Uh, the, uh, the Liberal leader today was asked about tolls because the original bridge proposal was going to be a tolled crossing. He said yes. that this crossing, if elected and if built, uh, said it wouldn't be tolled. How do you respond to that? I think that's a very positive thing. Um, I can remember when, when I was on Metro and when I was on TransLink, I said, you know, have a dollar a, a, a dollar a trip if, that's, if you've got to have any tolls at all. Uh, but you can't have one area that's tolled and, and nothing else tolled. You know, you can't, you can't have uh, a, the, a new bridge tolled, whereas Petula is free and, uh, you know, Golden Ears and every place else is free. So I agree, they all have to be the same. And um, I'm not sure how that's sorting out in terms of cost-benefit, but I really think it's got to be the same for everybody, and I support that very much, what he said today. All right. Uh, Lois Jackson, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thanks for the opportunity, Jill. Take care of yourself. All right. You too. That is Lois Jackson, a current city councillor in Delta. She is the former mayor of Delta, and this conversation is going to continue. 
Coming up on the program, we are going to take a look at what is happening in the United States. The president saying he will leave Walter Reed tonight. Several reports saying his advisors had told him as early as this morning he should be staying in that hospital. So we will talk about that. But right now, it is time for Richard's report. Time to check in with Richard Zussman, Global BC online journalist in Victoria. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. How was your weekend? Uh, Very well. How about you? Excellent. Fantastic. We went to some yurts in Port Renfrew. It was fantastic. A beautiful part of our province. (laughs) Very nice. I went hiking and it was beautiful. It was so misty. I felt like I was hiking through the clouds and uh, it was uh, great. Easy to physically distance and uh, have a great time. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. Uh, Let's talk about uh, what's happening, where to begin. Uh, The Massey Tunnel replacement announcement. So Andrew Wilkinson basically saying they're going to resurrect the original bridge. The big difference, though, he's saying it wouldn't have tolls. Yeah, that's a huge, huge difference, right? So this was a commitment that was made by the Liberals back in 2013. Work had already been done, up to $100 million of work already pumped into the replacement. And then the NDP cancelled it in 2017. And now Andrew Wilkinson says, we will bring back the exact same project that was cancelled, the 10-lane bridge. Uh, The environmental assessment is done. The consultation is done, he says. But the huge, huge difference will be the fact that there will be no tolls. The large question, obviously, is how is all of this going to be paid for? Uh, the Liberals seem to be willing to commit billions and billions of dollars in capital spending, which will be tacked on to the debt. Uh, the price tag of this project, though, unknown. You know, Wilkinson made it clear it would be much more expensive now than it was when the project was originally set to start construction. Uh, you know, we were already into it in 2016, 2017, when there was a change of government in 2017. And then... Uh, you know, fast forward that a few years and costs have gone up. So it's going to be a multi-billion dollar project, more than the price tag, I think, of $2.6 billion that was originally attached to it. But how much more, that's still unknown. And I'm not sure we'll get an answer for that before we go to the polls. Uh, and when we're talking about Surrey, uh, the mayor of Surrey, Doug McCallum, not very happy about the promise that uh, they would have a referendum if elected. Yeah, this is a really tricky one. So yesterday, out of nowhere, Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberal leader, sending out a statement after he had done his Q&A for the day, saying that an elected Liberal government would hold a referendum asking the people of Surrey whether they want to transition the police force uh, from uh, the RCMP to a localized police force. And there's just a lot of questions here around timing and whether it's even possible to delay uh, the move and and whether the referendum would even be binding. And, you know, many people in Surrey say, well, we may not be happy with the way that transition has gone, but it was the major issue of the municipal election. And this is what Doug McCallum ran on. And now he's in power. And this is what his council has approved to do. And, you know, McCallum is pointing out that it would be a big infringement on municipal government policy for a province to step in, hold a referendum, use the results of the referendum to stop something that, you know, a municipal government is trying to put in place. So it's a bit of a tricky one. I I believe this is just a a throw to try to get votes in Surrey. We know there are a lot of people in Surrey not happy with the transition. Many people want to see the RCMP continue and the Liberals are clearly trying to court those votes 
to win back some seats in Surrey with a non-binding referendum that may ultimately lead to nothing, even if the Liberals end up in power. And also wanted to touch on ICBC that uh, we're being offered now. British Columbians are being told we might get our own money back if there's some extra. And and we're supposed to be very happy about this. (laughs) This is so crazy to me. So I've been working on stories, Jill, as you know, for months and months and months around whether we're going to get a rebate check here in British Columbia due to the pandemic at ICBC. You know, every other jurisdiction almost in North America had rebate checks uh, available in May and June for drivers because we know that insurance companies have seen lower risk and less crashes due to the pandemic. And what we've heard again and again from the government is we don't know uh, the full impact yet. ICBC is in a financially very difficult situation. Uh, ICBC has lost money in its investments. We also had a lot of people cancel their policies, although they then subsequently signed back up for those policies once life started getting a little bit back to normal under COVID. And all of this, EB has said all along, if there are savings, we will know that in December. And at that point, we will give that money back to drivers. Well, now it's getting packaged up as some big commitment. And oh, look here, if there's money, we're going to give you a rebate check. And voters are going to look at that and say, oh, I want a rebate check. Don't be fooled by that. You know, we don't know if there's a rebate. We don't know if there's any money. We do know, though, there and there will be a rebate check in May or June following the switch to no fault. That's a separate thing entirely. And a lot of people rightfully should say, you know, why did I not get a rebate check because of COVID soon after that? And, and that window has passed. So don't be tricked by this. Uh, the Liberals as well, if they win, will no doubt give this money back. The question is, is this how you think ICBC should be managed? And, and it sort of is one of these... Uh, sleight of hand tricks, it seems, by the NDP to announce something, package it up nice, and try to fool voters to make them think that this is something new and shiny and only they can do. <laughs> and speaking of that, so this, is, this is also very interesting as well. The delay in this pandemic relief, this was relief money to help businesses, yeah. to help people suffering. Now, because of the election, there's a delay. I think this is a massive story, Jill. You know, right before the election was called. John Horgan held a press conference with Carol James announcing more than $1.5 billion in economic relief. And this is a plan that we had waited months for, and it was going to be part of the solution government was going to put in place to support businesses and British Columbians who were struggling through the pandemic. And Horgan was asked many times, if you call an election, will that money be delayed? And he said, no, once it's in the hands of the bureaucrats, it's in the hands of the bureaucrats. Well, I have seen now correspondence with businesses saying that these programs will not be available until after an election, until after a cabinet is formed, and this could be months of delay. So there are businesses out there who will not get the support they were promised due to the fact that John Horgan called an early election. And I think people should be worried and concerned about that because the commitment was this wasn't going to happen, and now it seems like it is happening. And COVID has hit us all so hard. This relief was supposed to be there to help people as quickly as possible. And an election has delayed that. Which has got to hurt. If you were one of those businesses and you were depending on that money and you heard, don't worry, it's not going to be impacted because of this. That's got to sting. 
Absolutely. And it was unclear at the time exactly how these programs are going to work. There was very few details about it, but the promise was bureaucrats are working on these grants now. They are working on these programs now. This will be communicated and distributed. And the answer is that's not the case. It is not going to be distributed until likely next year. And so as you are a business looking for money now to help pay your bills, to help keep yourself solvent, this comes as something as a you you look at the power grab that John Horgan is trying to make and saying, well, I'm the one that that is at the expense of this move. And I think it's going I Horgan's not taking questions today from reporters. He's doing a town hall at five o'clock. Uh, but uh, tomorrow will be interesting to see what his answer is on all of this, because this seems to me to be um, a real problem for them to try to explain how, first off, you uh, took a long time to announce your recovery plan. And then when you did, that money's not going to be available for when people really need it as we get through to the end of this fiscal year. Or no, not the fiscal year, the end of this uh, calendar year. All right, uh, Richard, thanks so much. Lots happening today. We will yeah. uh, leave it there. Well, how are you feeling about your financial situation, both personally, your own finances, and uh, on the bigger picture, what the country is looking like? Well, Insights West has put some questions like that to British Columbians, uh, to Canadians, about whether or not people think we are in a recession, and uh, also kind of gauging our optimism about personal finances. And Steve Mossop is joining me now, the president of Insights West, to talk a bit more about this. Steve, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, So what did you ask people? This is a regular series that we do every six months just to gauge the overall confidence in the economy and also their personal financial situations. What we found is that two-thirds of us in British Columbia describe the state of our household finances as good or very good. And and that number surprised me for a couple reasons. One is it's higher than what it was pre-pandemic. So back in February, it was 62%. And I just, uh, when you look at the contrasting numbers, the, 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 most of us feel that we're in the midst of a, a very bad recession. So 80% of us say that we're in a recession. And most think it's not going to be over anytime soon. So it's almost like I'm doing okay, my neighbor may not be. Hmm. Uh, that is surprising because I wouldn't have thought that the number would have gotten better because it really it feels like we've been in this pandemic for years, but we haven't been. So I'm surprised that already. I mean, that's I would imagine that's a good thing that people are feeling a bit more optimistic. It's really a tale of uh, two stories here. We have, you know, and we've heard this before, the rich in the pandemic are getting richer. And this is the case here. So we have uh, two thirds of the population saying, I'm doing OK. But that's a pretty significant number that is not doing okay. Uh, You know, almost 30% who are saying, I'm not okay, Uh, things are poor or they're very poor. So it's still a pretty massive number in any economy to have have that number saying that it's not doing so good. Uh, Does that number kind of, is is that what you would see kind of outside of pandemic times as well then? Is it it generally around the 30% that feel that, that they're not doing so well? Well, here's the interesting thing. So in January of 2019, the number was 27%. And in February, the next year, it was 36. That felt that the, that they were, uh, their own household finances were poor, very poor. And now it's gone back down to 28. So, you know, in, in a matter of a short year, in the midst of a pandemic, we have fewer people reporting that they're doing poor or very poorly. And in, and what about the difference then between how people are feeling about the country as a whole and compared to their own personal finances? Yeah, and that's the thing. So 78% of us think that we're definitely probably in a recession. 
Uh, there's a few of us who don't know. We don't follow that kind of stuff. Um, and maybe the scary part is that 46% think the recession will persist past 2021, and 18% of us aren't sure when it will end. So it's not, you know, we had in the answer list, you know, do you think it'll be over in Q1, Q2, Q3, et cetera? But the vast majority say no, it's, it's late in the year or it's the, it's the year after. Uh, I found it interesting, too. So you, you asked people kind of to rank the worries or what worries people the most right now. And, and what were some of the responses there? Well, here's the thing. We saw Stats Can came out with this really interesting stat about a month ago saying that the savings rate was way higher than it's ever been. Canadians are saving something like 20% of their income, uh, whereas in a, in a pre-pandemic world, it's around 2 or 3%. So there is, you know, people aren't going out. They're not going on vacations. They're not buying uh, major, major things for themselves because they're worried about the future. Uh, and so when we look at the, the two key stats of how do you feel about or how worried about you are uh, the ability to pay your bills and having a balance in your credit card. Those are the lowest numbers that they've been almost since tracking began five years ago. We got 50%, and it's still a big number though, Jill. 50% of us are worried about being able to pay our everyday bills. And 46% of us are worried about our balance in our credit card. But again, those two numbers are among the lowest that we've tracked in three or uh, since back in 2014. And, and also, I, I found interesting asking people uh, your worry level kind of about being able to pay your mortgage or your rent, uh, 41%, which I thought that might have been up there uh, this at least the same, if not more, than paying your bills. And that is the one, yeah, 41%, so it's a little bit lower than paying the bills, but it's still 41%. And we've done earlier polls that have showed that about 10 or 15% of us are in real financial trouble that you literally can't pay. You're not just worried about it, but you can't pay it. And we saw more deferrals. We saw the rent uh, assistance by the provincial government. So 41%. But again, relative to previous years, it's no different than what we've seen in the past. So in the midst of a pandemic, the number is 41. Last year it was 42. The year before it was 37. So we haven't seen a measurable increase in that number either. Uh, and I would imagine, too, it would probably take a bit more time to actually see if the numbers match. But uh, there's a big difference between, say, you're worried about being able to pay your mortgage than if we were going to cross-reference that to the number of foreclosures. Yes, and, and those numbers also have not really had a significant uptick like some economists predicted six months ago. Which, which again, again, and, and difficult to say, I wonder, and I don't think you asked this specifically, if, if people's worries were being eased because they were either getting CERB or they had some kind of uh, financial help from either uh, from the federal government? We have asked that in previous polls, and yes, it's been a lifesaver for many. Uh, both small businesses uh, that, you know, when we polled initially in the pandemic said that they didn't think they'd survive about 30%, and now we're seeing numbers that are much smaller. And interesting too, when you talk about the level of worry, because as we're seeing more and more uh, school uh, exposures, possible exposures, flight possible possible expo- uh, exposures to COVID nineteen, uh, I do wonder if the worry uh, of of contracting the virus, of of something happening that you, uh, I mean, there was a, a notice that that's being shared on social media of a whole class uh, that apparently is now being told to isolate along with with parents. Uh, that would be a huge worry for parents if you suddenly can't go to work for two weeks. The worry is high on that front, you're right. Um, but again, it's, it, the numbers are still, in, in relative terms, pretty small. You know, you've got two or 3,000 people that are being asked to stay home, a population of 4.5 million, and that's where you see these numbers being what they are, you know, in the two-thirds to 75% range, saying, hey, I'm okay, I'm worried, but I'm okay. And I'm, I'm worried about the economy, I'm worried about the future, 
But really, when I look at my personal situation, my savings are doing fine. My investments are doing fine. I'm actually uh, saving more than I ever have. So again, it's, uh, you know, if you look at the numbers, it's, it's two thirds of us to three quarters of us are doing just faring very well through the pandemic. Which also I find interesting given that in the beginning when, when everything was happening and nobody quite knew how to respond and what was going to happen, one of the messages was clearly that people haven't been saving because people were on, on the brink of losing, not being able to pay rent, of not being able to, to pay their bills, which would imply that you're living paycheck to paycheck. And I understand a ton of people do that, don't mean to, but that, that you do, which I find interesting that now now we're hearing from people saying, oh, I'm saving more than ever I'm able to save now. Yes. And it's, again, we're cutting back when's the last time we went clothes shopping. You know, people talk about their COVID outfits. Uh, when's the last time you even thought about booking a vacation? So we are definitely cutting back in a whole bunch of areas. We, we don't spend as much at restaurants. Look at how they're, they're struggling. So every business that's struggling, the counterpoint is, is that the people are saving money by not doing those things. Did anything else stick out to, to you in this uh, this latest uh, look at this uh, that that stuck stuck out as a bit of a change or something? Yeah, maybe unexpected? one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are worried about employment. So there's 59% of us who, who are worried about becoming unemployed. There's 43% who worry about their employer running into serious financial trouble. And those numbers are both up. So the fear is on the employment side, but right now, as it stands, people are financially doing pretty well. All right. Well, interesting findings. Steve, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about those. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. That is Steve Mossop. He is the president of Insights West. If you want to uh, find out more, look more at uh, those findings, you can head on over to their website. Uh, Curious uh, how you might answer this. Uh, If you were asked about your worry level, what is uh, worrying you the most? Is it the value of your investments, the safety of your savings, that you or somebody in your household will become unemployed, being able to pay your bills, uh, having to carry that balance on a credit card, uh, your employer running into serious financial trouble or being able to pay your mortgage or rent. Those are, I was reading that right off of the Insights West card when they asked people specific questions about that in September 2020, so last month. Your thoughts on this, so where would you put your worry level when it comes to your own personal finances and the finances of the country in general? Let me Time to get an update on what is happening with U.S. President Donald Trump. His medical team confirming he will soon head back to the White House as he continues treatment for COVID-19. He has been at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on a three-day hospitalization. We try to get patients home and out of the hospital uh, as quickly as is safe and reasonable. Every day a patient stays in the hospital unnecessarily is a risk to themselves. That was Dr. Sean Conley, Trump tweeting earlier today that he feels better than he has in 20 years. So we are going to bring in Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent in Bethesda, Maryland. Reggie, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. It has been a fast changing day. So what is the latest? Well, so we know the president is going to be leaving hospital. He undercut the message from his own medical staff by getting out ahead of them and putting that out on Twitter in a very cavalier tweet, uh, talking about how COVID-19 isn't something to be afraid. Don't let it control your life. Uh, This from a president who has spent three days in hospital getting experimental treatments uh, to try and deal with the fact that he has COVID-19. Outside of that, the medical update that was provided by uh, his physician and by those at Walter Reed uh, was still uh, as murky as it was over the weekend. They will not 
give information on what the president's lung scans look like. They will not uh, give further details on anything uh, beyond uh, treatments that the president is receiving, trying to hide behind the, the, the uh, Hippocratic oath. Uh, and it really does simply just raise more questions as to how strong the president actually is as he heads back to the White House. And when he goes back to the White House, uh, they kind of touched on this today as well. It, he is going back. He will have 24-hour care, almost as though, uh, I mean, there's full hospitalized care in the in the White House. Yeah, they do have a well-stacked and well-staffed uh, physicians and medical uh, treatment area inside the White House. Uh, but the fact that the president is heading back to uh, the executive branch as a COVID-positive patient, when this building is actively staffed with hundreds of people, both in the in the uh, in the office side and in the resident side, uh, poses problems for a building that is already being looked at as a nexus for potential spread, given the sheer number of people who work close to the administration inside the White House that continue to test positive. And do we have a, a grand total at this point of people who were close to the president and people who work for the president who have, who have uh, tested positive? So the number has to be kind of a guesstimate here because the White House, uh, via the press secretary, who is now positive, uh, they, they're not releasing exactly who may be testing positive, trying to cite uh, privacy. But we do know that there's roughly uh, 11 or 12 people from within the administration, both at the White House and on Capitol Hill, that have tested positive, uh, including Kayleigh McEnany, including a secondary person inside the press office uh, that was announced today, and including three journalists. But the fact that they won't talk about who is positive and that they're not actively undertaking any kind of contact tracing really makes it difficult to go backwards and see who may else wind up testing positive. And has there been any other follow-up on the president's cruise around in the SUV yesterday, whether or not the people that were in the vehicle are now quarantining or if that could have potentially exposed others? The information uh, is not being released from the Secret Service as to whether they are uh, quarantining or isolating. They have said in the past that they do not release uh, the information, uh, medical information for the staff that, that surround the president. Uh, but medical experts both inside Walter Reed and across the U.S. have simply called that a reckless move, what the president did, uh, actively kind of flying in the face of people around this country who have been isolated themselves or lost somebody because of COVID-19. Yet the president broke isolation, got into a vehicle uh, and put people's lives at risk solely so that he could remain the face of the administration, despite the fact that he is actively uh, uh, suffering from a disease that has killed uh, 210,000 people. Well, and uh, isn't that also being taken as a bit of a slap in the face as well? That tweet that you mentioned right off the top where he tweeted out, don't let it dominate your life. We have some great drugs and knowledge. Well, and look, he's saying don't let it dominate your life to the, to the hundreds of thousands of people who will never see a loved one again because they have died from a disease that the president on tape to Bob Woodward earlier this year uh, said that he was downplaying to not cause any kind of panic. But also it is the fact that the president is saying don't let it control your life uh, when he actively went to a hospital because he was sick because he needed treatment and they used experimental drugs on him uh, to deal with the fact that he had developed such potentially severe symptoms from this disease. That, that tweet goes back to the old Donald Trump and the physicians today outside of Walter Reed said he's back to him, his old self. That tweet was back to his old self. What happens next then as far as debates and what happens with the actual campaign? 
So the campaign uh, is still sidelined. Uh, the, the Trump family and Trump surrogates are actively out there and will be out there this week uh, to try and keep that message going forward. They've already actually tried to spin this into a positive for Donald Trump. Trump surrogates were on Fox News this morning saying that he now has life experience with COVID-19 because he's contracted it. Uh, and Joe Biden hasn't. Therefore, he's not the person who should be able to talk about this. This is the spin that's now being used on a president who contracted a deadly disease, making it a plus for his campaign. Uh, but the doctors as well today said, uh, th th rather, they didn't say whether he should or shouldn't return to the campaign trail. That also poses problems going forward, especially with that debate, uh, you know, less than two weeks away. And it's still up in the air if it will go forward. Uh, which, again, I think a lot of people questioning if they heard that correctly. But as you're saying, now they are using this as a a positive thing saying he's more in tune or better suited to be president because he had COVID-19 or has COVID-19. Yeah, because he he's now lived through it. And they're saying that this is the moment that, that Donald Trump now understands COVID-19, despite the fact that he led a country that is seeing 40,000 cases of this virus every single day, that he turned his back on at the very beginning of it, uh, and that he has continued to downplay now that he's contracted it. This is a good thing, they say, for the country, because he's able to talk the country through it. Uh, even as he actively undercuts Joe Biden and his campaign for practicing mitigation efforts to not contract this virus. Joe Biden did not get hospitalized for this virus. Donald Trump did. And they're spinning this to be a good thing. All right, Reggie, we will leave it there. I know it's a very busy day for you. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, a Global News Washington correspondent. And we will keep you up to date with what is happening. Uh, if the timeline stays the same, that would see Donald Trump, the U.S. president, leave that medical center in about two hours from now. But again, we will keep you up to date on what is happening with that. Well, we have talked a little bit about a couple of big issues in Surrey. One, the Surrey RCMP and the transition to a civic force and an election promise to hold a referendum on that. Also talking about crime in Surrey and the RCMP earlier today sent out some photos identifying suspects involved in vandalism at Sophie's Place. Joining me for more on these stories is Brenda Locke, a Surrey city councillor, also a former B. Liberal MLA. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. A few things to get to today, but I wanted to start uh, with a story that uh, I know has uh, angered a lot of people uh, and has a lot of people questioning why anybody would target a place like Sophie's Place. Uh, it was vandalized back in August. Uh, RCMP have now put out some pictures of the suspects. And I know you have a special connection with that place. Uh, what, what was your response when you heard that it had been vandalized? You know, it's incredibly sad that uh, anyone would stoop so low as to vandalize or, or harm in any way that facility. And, and for people that aren't familiar with it, what does Sophie's Place do? So Sophie's Place is a child advocacy facility for children and youth. And the, the children and youth are victims of abuse physically, emotionally, and sexually. Um, they are also integrated with the Child Development Centre that is also part of the, of the um, facility. And those children are often uh, physically challenged. Uh, there's also some typical children that go there, but the, the place is best practice for all children. 
which has got to be uh, upsetting as well in that the surveillance pictures that RCMP released show uh, rather young people. I think the ages of the suspects, uh, they're thinking around 14 to 16. Uh, they can be seen vandalizing an unmarked police car and then some of the playground equipment. Yeah, it's pretty difficult to get your head around why uh, youth would be that angry and would be uh, doing that kind of uh, really um, unnecessary damage to to Sophie's place. Especially, it's a very it's a very special place for Surrey. Uh, I think Surrey residents that know about it are very proud of that facility, and for them to target that location is incredibly sad. Uh, Well, hopefully with the release uh, of those photos and that information, uh, it will help in the investigation. Uh, Speaking of crime, this uh, is a crime that was committed in Surrey. There has been a lot of talk uh, as well about uh, the RCMP, the transition to a police force. So what is your reaction to the B.C. Liberals uh, promising that they would hold a referendum on that transition if elected? Well, I think that uh, I think that's a very positive move for the city. I can tell you. I hear daily, sometimes hourly, from residents who are just absolutely opposed to this transition. And they're opposed for a number of reasons, some of them because they really want to keep the RCMP, but a lot of people because they absolutely don't understand why. They have never been given the facts. They have never been heard. And uh, it's been a very poorly uh, done secretive process to date. Are you concerned, though, that this could be an election promise, something to get those voters? I mean, you're somebody that has the background in provincial politics and now in civic politics, uh, because Mike Farnworth has come out saying this is a municipal issue, that they've already gotten the green light, that this this is no longer a provincial issue. Well, I think that um, Mr. Farnworth should go back and check because actually it is the responsibility of the province to make sure that uh, policing and public safety is the responsibility ultimately of the Solicitor General of the province. And so there is room for this and certainly there is room in the uh, in the solicitor Solicitor General's uh, act to be able to uh, to require a better public input, but they can go as far as a referendum. That is quite appropriate. Uh, what is happening with, with the transition? Like you said, there there have been a lot of questions about the cost of the transition, where things are. I know the pandemic has changed some things there, even as far as how council meets. So where is the process from what you know? Well, and, and that's a really good question because uh, the, the entire process from day one has been kept solely in the mayor's office. He has not shared very much with council at all. So uh, where they are now, it's uh, with the police board and they're going to have to make some decisions. But, you know, all of the information they get is also filtered. So I hope that um, the police board members uh, understand that. Uh, The process has been flawed, no doubt about it, from the beginning. And that is why... Surrey residents are so up in arms. I mean, when I, as a sitting councillor, have to FOI my own city to get information, there's a problem. And I think that um, we have heard uh, the Premier say that the public had the right to know the cost of this uh, transition. We do not know the cost. We do not know the cost um, of the risk management piece. We don't know any of the costs. That is... um, that is not factual when they say 
we've been given the cost, they're still basing this on an old report from 2018. And is that the the dollar figure of putting it at around $19 million? Well, that's the number they said, but now they're finding out other information and that number just keeps creeping up and there's no real targeted number. And it's also talking about a police force that is that is smaller than the police force we have today in number of, of uh, members. It's also one that has never had an increase in about four years. And we know that Surrey's growing um, at a rapid pace. Every year we add a city the size of White Rock to the, to the uh, population of Surrey. We haven't increased our police force in over three years. And when you say that as a counsellor, you have to FOI to get basic information about this. How many times have you had to do mm-hmm. that? Well, I had to do it right at the very beginning to get the uh, the information on the public consultation piece. And um, I, I asked uh, the city to provide it. They wouldn't. So I had to go through an FOI process myself. Uh, do you see anything changing then as far as uh, during the election campaign? Again, this being used as a promise uh, from the BC Liberals, uh, this obviously will be discussed, but uh, will anything happen with the transition or this process, do you think, before uh, we know the results of the provincial election? Um, I don't uh, I don't see... Well, I think that the... Uh, the NDP are going to have to take a better look at it than just saying it's a done deal because they know full well it is not a done deal. That's just the mayor's lingo. I think they have to uh, take a look and a hard look at the citizens of Surrey. We have 6,000 or 7,000 lawn signs. There's more lawn signs to keep the RCMP in Surrey than all the all the parties put together will even dream to have in this city. Um, the opposition is clear. Citizens don't want it. So I think, you know, cooler heads need to prevail and a little bit of common sense would go a long way. Uh, we haven't seen that so far, but it would go a long way in this process. All right. Uh, Councillor Locke, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. That uh, was Brenda Locke, a Surrey City Councillor. Uh, curious if you agree when Councillor Locke said the majority of Surrey residents don't want the transition to a civic force. Well, if you are familiar with the Bose Corn Maze, you will know what uh, a cherished event it is. People looking forward to it every time, every year at this time of year. Unfortunately, there was what is being called an extreme act of vandalism at the corn maze that forced it to shut down temporarily, which is a good thing. But joining me on the line to talk a bit more about what happened is Mike Bose, the owner of the Bose Farms Corn Maze. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. You are welcome. Uh, so what happened? Uh, sometime Friday night, uh, a group of people, we don't know who they were or anything about them, entered the uh, property and destroyed all of our tables and chairs and a bunch of our lights and all of our signs and even did some damage in the corn maze itself. Uh, and when you saw this, what was your reaction? Uh, we were astounded. Like we were just absolutely speechless. My my son, he went in there to get his bin to pick sweet corn, and he called me. And when I went, he was 
just sitting on a bench with his head in his hands. You, you couldn't believe the, the amount of destruction there was. And, and do you have uh, any idea how they were able to access the site? Well, it's, it's an open cornfield. The gates were locked, but there isn't actually a fence around the field because it just makes the, the edge of the field harder to maintain. Right. So, yeah, you just simply walk, walk off the road into the field. Uh, but I, I would imagine you wouldn't think that uh, that would be a target of vandals in that uh, it's it's a cornfield. There wouldn't be uh, anything really of value or any, not that that would make it okay, but just trying to make some sense of it. Uh, it's hard to make sense of it. I mean, we've, we've had people trespass before and, and we usually catch them and people are trespassing it. They're usually doing it just for a lark. They're not there to do any damage. It's It's just, you know, at midnight, what a cool thing to do, go for a walk. Um, and they're usually fairly pleasant people to to talk with, but this was just, it was an act of absolute violence that we've never seen before, never experienced, never could have expected to experience. And were there any, I, I would imagine too, we're talking about a cornfield, that there wouldn't be security cameras or anything like that, but is there any way or do you know of any way to investigate and try and figure out who did this? Well, there is a cell tower across the street from the field, and, and uh, we think that there were cell, uh, cameras on that cell tower. So, yeah, it's 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 tough to investigate. Um, the RCMP are just that they, they attended to see what there was to see if there's a growing trend in our neighborhood, and apparently there is a trend in our neighborhood. So. A, a trend of, of vandalism? Yep. Hmm. I found out last night. So, they're, you know, it it helps them in finding people doing stuff in a neighborhood when they, when they find a trend. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I know that the corn maze, you were forced to shut down for a time on Saturday, uh, but it sounds like you had a pretty good response uh, from neighbors and friends who heard about this. Yeah, as just a whole bunch of neighbors came out, and uh, one friend of my wife's brought her husband's landscaping trailer and truck, and so we had a way to, to haul all the damaged stuff away, and we got her all cleaned up and made sure that it was safe, and we actually got open Saturday night. <laughs> uh, we feel bad for the people that we had to turn away. Yeah, because uh, I would imagine too, with with COVID and with the pandemic, uh, things probably already looked a little bit different this year. Uh, very different, very very different. Um, we have limits on the number of people we can have in the maze at any one time, so we we do our best to to keep everybody socially distant and um, we stay within those limits. So our numbers are way down, but it, you know, it's for us, it's, it's the weeknights where we have boy scouts and girl guides and church groups coming out because those groups have to meet outdoors and there aren't very many places they can meet outdoors and have some fun. And for people that aren't familiar exactly where it is, but maybe might have seen something that they're now realizing might have been connected or they've heard something about this, this was Friday night. Where exactly are you located? Uh, At the corner of 64th Avenue and 156th Street in Surrey.
And do you know if, if RCMP have asked you or if they are looking as well for people who might have seen suspicious activity or, or again, have heard anything? Yes, they are. And uh, a few neighbors that have noticed some stuff happening in the subdivision in Sullivan Station have uh, phoned in as well. So, uh, When you talk about stuff happening, like other other acts of vandalism? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so did the police or did the RCMP then give you the impression that maybe it's the, the same people or a group of people that are out doing this? They believe it's a group of people who uh, probably walk down. It, it's uh, on a fairly secluded road. And where it is, there are no houses. So it was people had to walk a fair distance to get there or drive. Mm. But it is it is within walking distance of of a fairly decent sized subdivision. And any idea on on a dollar figure as far as how much damage was done? Um, it it's really hard to say. Um, it, it's it's the loss it's the loss of a day's business on our busiest weekend, second busiest busiest weekend of the year. And I mean, we had to close our pumpkin patch and our sweet corn sales because we had so much that we had to get cleaned up and to to make it safe for people to be there again. So it, that's a it's a dollar figure that's really hard to put in there, but you know it's in the neighborhood of ten thousand hmm. dollars. And so next weekend, I understand. Then is next weekend the final weekend of of the corn maze? Yes, it is. And it's and it's with the help of the neighbors for clean the cleanup done and everything. Uh, at this point, uh, will it be? You'll be open as usual. Yep, we we actually opened yesterday, and and it it was an, a really nice day. Um, people came in at nice intervals, and uh, we were able to stay well within our our limits for this COVID year. So we actually we actually enjoyed last yesterday. It kind of eased eased our minds, and get, can't express how nice everybody has been. It's been a it's been a very very good year. Uh, people are so understanding, and we've gotten so many responses, and and the the help that we got from neighbors, uh, you can't express how how valuable that was in in easing our minds and how we feel about how we fit into the community. And we've been here for, my family's been here for a very, very long time. And it's, it's just reassuring. And the under, people are so understanding about the restrictions and, and rules that have to be put in place to keep everybody safe from this horrible pandemic. So just like to thank everybody for that. All right. Well, Mike Bose, we'll leave it there. Uh, we wanted to talk to you today to to get that out there uh, to let people know. Not uh, that it's great that uh, the support and you've been able to reopen, but also if anybody has any information that they can help but catch whoever did this. But thank you so much for taking some time with us today. I thank you. Have a great day. Okay, you too.
That is Mike Bose, the owner of the Bose Farms Corn Maze. Again, if you saw anything in that area on Friday night, as he said, there have been some other vandals, uh, acts of vandalism nearby. Uh, Surrey RCMP are investigating more from parents wondering about just how big cohorts are in schools and how to keep kids safe in schools. Not only the students, but their families and anybody that may they might come into contact with as well. Well, parents of students at an elementary school in West Vancouver say they have a right to know about any COVID-19 exposures at that school. And they say the current system isn't enough and has already led to more positive cases of the virus. Uh, Many have turned to Facebook, to social media, to help share alerts or warnings with each other. And our show contributor, John Jang, has more in this report. Good afternoon, Jill. Parents of students at Caulfield Elementary School in West Vancouver say they shouldn't have to be using Facebook to find out about COVID-19 exposures in their classrooms. But unfortunately, that kind of information just isn't available to them anywhere else. Not through 811, not through Coastal Health, and not through the school district. One such parent, Sherry Robinson, spoke with me earlier saying that because this crucial information isn't being shared to them, they're forced to help each other. Thankfully, the ones that have had their children test positive or, or their moms or grandparents that help out, um, they thankfully, they you know, they took it upon themselves to put it out there on Facebook. And I know my, one of my girlfriends, she was quite nervous to do so because she wasn't sure about the response. She was the first person to do it. So she was she was nervous, she said, and, and she didn't know how everyone was going to respond, but she felt it was her duty because she knew that her kids had been not going, they're not necessarily going on play dates left, right, and center or anything, but they're playing outside in the neighborhood and not always wearing masks when you're outside, as we're told they don't have to. Um, and, and kids can't stay six feet apart at all times. There's just no way to police it. They don't realize they're seven and six, you know, so this is a young group of kids. And um, But thankfully, once she got the ball rolling and kind of um, the stigma was kind of erased on, on if you were someone you know was testing positive, everyone kind of jumped ship. And we've had, thankfully, multiple parents post about their cases so that we can all make the decision for our family. I kept my son home for three days last week waiting on one of his classmates' tests who was a sibling of a close contact of someone that tested positive, but there was no online learning option. I phoned or I emailed the teacher, and I wasn't expecting her to be doing it, but I thought maybe they'd have something set up. They've had months to prepare for this. I mean, surely to God they thought this could happen, Um, and I'm sure it's probably happening in other schools that we just don't know about over here on the North Shore, or maybe they don't have a Facebook group like we have got going, but um, yeah, we're we're hoping for change. There was a letter that was sent out, an open letter to Dr. Henry by one of the moms today. That mm-hmm. I mean, I I think it came out maybe two hours ago, and I think it's almost got 500 signatures on it, just asking for some changes in their strategy now that it seems to be more rampant um, in these schools, or more than they're saying that it is. That letter, which is now public, is a plea to Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Ministry of Health, urging them to share information with all students and parents that could be impacted by a possible COVID-19 exposure. So I asked Sherry if she or other parents of students at the school have received any kind of response from officials in regards to their concerns. No, and, you know, we were all watching. I mean, I've watched Dr. Henry every day, even when she was on daily. But we're all, of course, especially now that we're, it's hitting so close to home, we, we're all watching these press conferences. Last week on Monday, 
I had um, I'd spoken with a different reporter, and she had um, asked some of our questions to Dr. Henry, and and I know that she's totally overworked, and they've got to be careful on what they say, but we just don't seem to get. She da- seems to dance around the subject of of you know these cohorts and why whole cohorts aren't being told to self-isolate or just some, sometimes it's just you know a few classmates well how do you know that you know that this the positive case hasn't been in contact with the whole class i mean they're not huge classrooms um so yeah we're we're not too happy with the the, the answers as to especially the specificity of our our questions um keith baldry asked a question on thursday and again we're not getting any straight answers from her, so we're yeah we're frustrated, and that's why I think one of the moms took it upon herself to write this open letter in hopes just just in hopes to maybe um, change some things in the school so that it doesn't get so out of hand that the whole school has to shut down. While we wait to see what the response will be like from the Ministry of Health, if there's actually going to be one, I asked Sherry, you know, given the current conditions and circumstances with a lack of transparency and information, does she feel safe sending her child back to the school without those changes in place? No, um, we feel like I personally am getting more and more concerned. I've lost a lot of trust over the last couple of weeks since our cases have come up and just the lack of transparency, as you said. Um, and no, I don't. I live with my, my dad and my mom, with my son. My parents are in their mid-70s. My dad's immunocompromised. I didn't send my kid back in uh, June, he, so he had been out for six months when I sent him back in September, and that was a very tough decision. And I'm regretting it now because if I had signed him up for this transitional program with, like, online learning before school started, he'd have an option to, to do it at home. Um, but now that we didn't sign up before school started, I have no option to do that with him. And he's lost he's lost out on a lot. I mean, it was only he was only in grade two last year, but it, it, it affected everyone having him home and not. I mean, he wasn't retaining anything. So, no, I don't feel safe with unless things change and they change the way they're telling us about different cases. We're not asking for personal information or names or anything like that, but I think parents have a right to know how many positive cases are in a classroom at our kids' school. Absolutely. And then we can make, you know, we can make our own informed decision. I feel like they think that we're, we, we can't handle the truth, um, but, but at the same time, this is a pandemic. We've, none, none of us have been through this type before, and I think we all need as much information as we can as parents to make the correct decisions for our families. And John Jang is with me on the line now. And John, uh, Sherry Robinson, I think, raised some very interesting points. And there's the open letter. And these concerns, I think, are shared by a lot of parents. Yeah, close to 500 signatures as of this afternoon. It's been sent uh, to Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Ministry of Health and Vancouver Coastal Health as well. Uh, We'll see what the official response is like. But if you look through the list of parents that have signed the signature, it's not just located in West Vancouver and North Vancouver. It's all over. There are people signing from Burnaby. There are people signing from Vancouver Island. So clearly this is an issue that's uh, impacting a lot of different families across B.C. 